0: Charter puts food in the larder of lawyers, whom the courts would dare. With remedies bold, we all will uphold the legacy of old Pierre. This fine list of rights puts the courts in the lights, with judgments both long and demanding. The proportions they'll measure some change with the weather, unless the whole thing's notwithstanding. Charter a course, I will charter a course, if we can just get the country to trust us. Charter a course, south, east, west, and north, and along the way we may find justice.
1: Hello and welcome back to Charter a Course, a podcast created by the David Asper Centre for Constitutional Rights at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. My name is Cheryl Milne and I am the Executive Director of the Asper Centre. Our podcast focuses on leading constitutional cases and issues highlighting strategic aspects of constitutional litigation and some of the accomplishments of U of T's faculty and alumni involved in these cases. It's our hope that over the course of this episode, whether you are a law student, a lawyer, or just love to talk about the charter during family dinners, that you learn about an aspect of constitutional law and litigation that interests you. I wish to first acknowledge this land from which our podcast emanates For thousands of years, it has been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. Today this meeting place is still the home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work here. Today our episode focuses on freedom of religion and the role of interveners in landmark cases concerning religious freedom. Section two of the charter sets out that everyone has four fundamental freedoms, one of which is freedom of conscience and religion in clause 2A. We will learn about the different ways in which the court has viewed freedom of religion in the past and the implications of those different views from University of Calgary Professor Howard Kislewicz. In the practice corner, we will talk about the process of intervening in appeals at the Supreme Court of Canada with lawyer, Adria Weaver. let's introduce our first guest. Howard Kislewicz is an associate professor at the University of Calgary, Faculty of Law. Howie received his LLM and SJD at the University of Toronto, Faculty of Law. His research concerns constitutional and administrative law with a particular focus on religious freedom. Howie's work is published in leading law journals and he has presented at national and international conferences. Welcome, Howie.
0: Great to be here, Cheryl.
1: Before we get to the main topic for our discussion today, I want to ask you about your musical side hustle. Those of you who pay attention to the show notes will be aware that Howie co-created the Charter Course theme song, which we played for a little bit longer this time at the beginning of the episode. Tell us a bit more about what you've been doing musically and how this law shanty came into being.
0: Thanks, Cheryl. I'm speaking to you today from Treaty 7 territory here in Calgary. You know, Music has always been a huge and important part of my life ever since I was a little kid. I had bands from high school all the way through law school and I still make music with my songwriting partner. This particular project that led to the Charter a Course song, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic when we were all just learning to be stuck at home and feeling a little isolated and feeling a little powerless, I thought, well, what's something I can do? And I, I knew from reading the news that the food banks all over the country and in Calgary as well were, were really struggling that's a cause that always touches my heart. I, I love to cook and eat and feed people. And the idea of people not having enough to to get by is always something that that really troubles me. So I thought, well, what if I just put out on Twitter, I'll write and record you a song if you make a donation of any size to a food bank. And there was quite a bit more response than I expected. I think it led to 20 something songs in the span of just a few weeks. And I don't know exactly how much money we raised because I didn't want to ask people how much they were donating so everybody would feel like they could participate whatever they could afford to donate. But just from people sending me screenshots of their donation receipts, I know that we've raised thousands of dollars uh, over the course of this project. And it's a really special thing. A lot of the songs that ended up coming out of that project were songs for people's children or pets. As the songwriter, you see the person who asked you to write the song see their love of their child or pet reflected in song and come to life in that way. And there's this really magical moment that sometimes happens there. So after writing a few of these songs, also around the same time, there was that big TikTok sea shanty craze where people were doing sea shanties of various types. And I thought, huh, a charter sea shanty would really work. And I knew Our colleague Rob Curry, who teaches out at Dalhousie, I know that he's a fantastic traditional Atlantic musician. He's a singer, a songwriter, a guitar player, and he has this beautiful voice. And we had kind of met each other over Twitter. And I I reached out to him and I said, Hey, you know, what if we wrote this sea shanty about the charter? And he said, Well, you know, sea shanties are usually in six eight. That's the time signature. And the word notwithstanding really works in six eight. So let's let's do it. (laughs) And from there it just took off. I put out another tweet saying anybody who wants to lend their voice to the shanty, we'd love to have you. And lots of people did, some people I knew, some people I didn't know. I think one of my favorite contributions was uh, a lawyer in Ottawa who I hadn't met, but was a friend of one of my former students who brought the tweet to her attention. And she's a lawyer in Ottawa, but she has a music degree in performance and she's a trained singer. And so she sent me this lovely four-part harmony that really brings the chorus to life and makes it fall. So it turned out to be a little community builder. I think it, it brought a smile to some people's faces. And then when you reached out to me and asked to use the music in the podcast, I said, well, maybe we can make some more good out of this and, and find another way to donate to a food bank. And, and you were very gracious and you made a very generous donation. And so all of the performers who contributed their voices to the project were really delighted that we could, we could do a little bit more good.
1: It's a great addition to our podcast, for sure. It's also a little bit of an earworm. I find myself singing it in my head a (laughs) lot (laughs) now that we're doing the podcast. (laughs) I was listening to another Canadian law podcast this weekend that uses your music, Stereo Decisis, with Robert... Danae, Hillary Young, and Oliver Pulleybag. It covers more general legal topics. Are there others that uh, use your music? Uh, there's a
0: couple. Uh, somehow my music seems to fit the podcast medium, maybe. One of them is my songwriting partner has his own podcast that he does with his sisters. It's a pop culture podcast called Friday Night Movie. He used uh, a little instrumental piece that we did together, and it, I think, works really well. And there's one other, somebody who I met as an undergraduate student and then lost touch with, he reached out to me at one point because he was doing a podcast about board games. It's called So Very Wrong About Games. And he wanted to use a song from one of the the albums that my band, What Does It Eat, had recorded as his, his intro music. So we were happy to let him do that. So I guess if there's any podcast creators out there listening and you need music for your podcast, I work cheap. So, you know, reach out
1: you work for donations (laughs) to good causes. So let's turn to our topic for today. Religious freedom underpins Canada's multicultural roots. It forms an important part of the Constitution's role as a bulwark against the tyranny of the majority, if you will. But religious freedoms can at times come into conflict with other legitimate legal and constitutional objectives such as safety and security in schools. These conflicts can stir controversy. And we would like you to sort of guide us through these murky waters that surround religious freedom. So I want to begin by asking you a broad question. How has the Supreme Court approached the concept of freedom of religion? And are there any examples of where, in your view, the court has ever gotten it right? Um, And if not, why is this the case?
0: One of the first things that we could note about the Supreme Court of Canada's approach to religion is that it's highly subjective. So the touchstone for establishing a religious freedom claim is the sincere belief of the claimant. So as we'll talk about, I think, in a bit more detail, that means if you're making a religious freedom claim, you don't have to prove that what you're doing, your religious practice, is accepted by other members of your religious community or somehow an authoritative or authentic expression of a particular religious tradition. Rather, you just have to prove that you sincerely believe that the practice or belief has a nexus with religion. Now, I think this is generally good because it leaves open a wide variety of practice. But this approach can sometimes overemphasize the individualistic aspects of religious freedom and make it harder for courts to see the collective aspects of religious freedom. Now, this seems to be changing uh, in cases called Loyola and the Trinity Western decision I think we're starting to see a reflection from the Supreme Court that there are collective aspects to religious practice that also deserve some kinds of protection. One area where we have a little bit of a gap in how we define religious freedom or how we approach religious freedom is that if you're making a religious freedom claim, you have to show that the interference with your practice is more than trivial or insubstantial. That's the language that the Supreme Court uses. But what exactly that means is, in my view, under-theorized. We don't really have a good picture of it. When the court says it's trivial or insubstantial, does that mean it's some kind of major part of your religious practice, of, of your religion? Or does it mean that the consequences for choosing your religious practice that are secular consequences, that those are trivial? And I think we see a bit of both. At the Supreme Court, they've never really looked into this. At the lower courts, you get a bit of a patchwork, but it's mostly a reasonableness test. And that, to me, has the potential to, I think I put this in a paper, there's a a Tom Waits line where he says, the large print giveth and the fine print taketh away. So if the first step is highly subjective, but then the triviality step uses a reasonableness test, which is somewhat objective, then we risk courts' making their own decisions about what matters most in a religious tradition, which, according to the first step, should really be up to the claimant to determine. Another aspect of the way we do religious freedom is that because the right is cast so broadly, it leaves most of the heavy analytical lifting to Section 1, which I know you've talked about on a previous podcast. In my view, this has put a lot of pressure on the Section 1 reasoning to be more forgiving to government justification. Because there is this pressure on section one, what we see is courts giving more of the benefit of the doubt to government justifications of rights infringements. In terms of when the Supreme Court of Canada has gotten religious freedom right, to me, the Multani case really holds a lot of promise for being an example. Uh, As we'll talk about later, one of the things that impresses me so much about that case is that the court shows a real willingness to question some common assumptions about the way many or even most of us see the world and i think this is the part of the transformative potential of religious freedom litigation that is the ability to understand other ways of understanding the world around us
1: Multani also doesn't actually use that kind of reasonableness approach that it came up much later in the Doré case, in terms of assessing the charter values and charter breaches. I mean, Multani used a section one analysis. You speak a lot about cross-cultural communication in your work. Can you break that concept down for the audience sure. a bit?
0: This this aspect of my work really is inspired. Much of my thinking has been by the work of Benjamin Berger, who's a professor at Osgood Hall Law School, who's, who's written really expansively about this area and for me, inspirationally, about this area. And one of the things that he says is that when we witness religious freedom litigation, one of the things we're witnessing is a cross-cultural encounter. What does he mean by that? Well, you know, very broadly speaking, a culture is a way of symbolizing and understanding the world around you. And in his view, Canadian constitutionalism, Canadian constitutional law is its own cultural system. And in religious freedom litigation, we're watching it come face-to-face with a religious way of understanding the world that has its own symbols and its own way of determining what's important and what's good. So we have this encounter, and in my view, it's not only an encounter, but the parties are actually communicating with each other. So not only are they presenting their own view of the world, they're attempting at least to create shared meanings across cultural boundaries. And this can be more challenging than communicating with someone who shares your culture, who shares your basic assumptions about how the world works, what's important, what's expected. And what makes this particularly challenging in the litigation context is that one of the partners in communication, that is the court or the judge, has a lot more power than the other. So what we have is a kind of asymmetrical communicative relation. And what, what that means is that Parties are incentivized to win the ear of the court. And in order to do that, they have to make their practices intelligible to people who might not have familiarity with them. So one example in the Amsalim case, which we'll talk about in more detail later, the practice at issue was the building of Sukkot. Sukkah is a little structure built by some Orthodox Jews or some practicing Jews uh, in a holiday that actually just happened. It's a fall harvest holiday. And one of the traditions, one of the obligations that some Jews observe during this holiday is to gather uh, a series of plants that are native to the Middle East and shake them in particular ways and offer particular blessings. Now, if you came across somebody doing this and you had no familiarity, it would probably be a completely unintelligible practice for you. And yet, if this is your culture you understand exactly what's going on, right? You understand why this person is shaking a palm leaf up and down and left and right. So to make those practices uh, intelligible, the parties have to do some work and contextualize those practices.
1: In your 2014 article on cross-cultural communication, you assess the Supreme Court's reasoning in three cases against two values of cross-cultural communication, respect and self-awareness. Before we discuss that in more detail, I just wanted us to provide a quick overview of those cases, some of which you've already alluded to. So the first one is the Multani case, where you've described that being a a really good example of how the court, in your words, got it right. Multani addressed a situation where a 12-year-old student wore a kirpan under his clothes to school. In the applicant's orthodox belief system, one must always wear a kirpan under your clothes, and it resembles a metal dagger. So the blade must be made of metal. And the school and the parents agreed to conditions under which the kirpan could be worn at school. One of those conditions involves sealing it within the child's clothing. The board refused to ratify that agreement and citing Article 5 of their Code de Vie, prohibiting the bringing of weapons to schools. And the board decided that the kirpan could only be worn in the form of some sort of pendant or made from some other dull material such as plastic or wood. And Multani sought a declaration that the decision infringed his freedom of religion and was therefore of no force and effect. The majority of the Supreme Court held that the board's decision infringed Multani's religious freedoms and that the infringement was not justified under Section 1. Howie, perhaps you could then also outline a little more the Amsterdam case that you've also referred to so we can set up our background for the discussion going forward. Sure, and one one more
0: thing about the Multani case. I mean, there's so much going on in this case. And as I said, to me, the reasoning is really, uh, in a lot of ways, exemplary. But one little footnote, which is not a footnote for the participants in the case, is that the participants, they had won at the Quebec Superior Court and then they lost at the Court of Appeal. So Gurbaj Multani never went back to his public high school, he ended up going actually to a Seventh Day Adventist school that allowed him to wear his kirpan. By the time he got his decision from the Supreme Court of Canada, he had just about graduated high school. So he ended up finishing out at the same private high school that he had started in. So the the victory was important for future students who wanted to wear a kirpan to school. But it reminds us that the people who lend their names to our cases, the consequences for their lives are not always exactly as they appear when we read the decision. Now, moving on to Amsalem, in that case, there was a a group of Orthodox Jews who were uh, what's called divided co-owners of units in an apartment complex in Montreal. In Quebec civil law, that's the rough equivalent of a condominium, basically functions very similarly. And they were subject to an injunction filed the syndicat. That's like the condo board. So they were the respondents in the case. So they were, owners were subject to an injunction barring them from erecting Sukkot uh, on their balconies for the purposes of fulfilling this biblically mandated obligation of dwelling in a sukkah, which is a small enclosed temporary hut uh, during the annual holiday of Sukkot, the same name. So what happens is that the syndicat alleges that the structures violate the apartment complex's bylaws, uh, which prohibit the erection of any structures on balconies and terraces. And they offer the co-owners an opportunity to set up a single communal sukkah uh, in the complex's gardens as an alternative. And while this looked to be a promising avenue of negotiation, ultimately, the Orthodox Jewish residents refused this accommodation, saying that that would run contrary to their beliefs, which, for various reasons they said, called for individual sukkot. Now the majority of the Supreme Court, and I'll emphasize here, it was a narrow majority. This was a it was a seven-member uh, panel, and it was a four-three decision. So one of the interesting, maybe challenging things about the Amsalem case is that actually, if you add up all the judges who decided the case, so the you know, the single judge at the Superior Court, and then the three judges uh, at the Quebec Court of Appeal, there were more judges who sided with the condo board. Uh, than there were with the claimants. But because it was the right four, right, the, the four at the Supreme Court of Canada who sided with the co-owners, they were ultimately successful. And in doing so, the majority of the Supreme Court set out the basic framework for determining whether an action violates religious freedom, and it's a framework that has been very stable even until today. The other important thing that gets said in the Amsalom case is that the court says that the state uh, and the court should not be involved in the legitimization of religious dogma And so they said that a claimant doesn't need to demonstrate that there was an objective religious obligation. So what happens in the trial level in this case is that each side brought its own rabbi as an expert witness. And so the condo board's rabbi says, there's no such Jewish obligation to build one's own sukkah. And the the Orthodox Jewish claimants, they have a different rabbi who says, yes, uh, there is in certain circumstances an obligation to build one's own sukkah. And the court says, we don't want the state courts to be involved in the determination of which rabbi is right uh, on Judaism. So instead, its way around this conundrum is by favoring a personal or subjective understanding of freedom of religion. So for the majority, the court's analysis is only concerned with assessing the sincerity or honesty of a claimant's belief. So to the extent that expert witnesses are brought in, they are only there, at least according to the Supreme Court, to add evidence about the sincerity of the claimant's belief. Is this person telling the truth? Well, if an expert witness says that this is consistent with other practices in the community, well, that makes us more likely to believe them. But additionally, there must be some nexus with religion, and as I said before, some degree of non-trivial interference with the practice. So ultimately, what happens is that the court holds the injunction was a non-trivial interference with the Orthodox Jewish residents' religious freedoms under the Quebec Charter, and the court also makes clear that everything it's saying about religious freedom under the Quebec Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms applies equally to the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms.
1: I think we see then a shift in the next case I'm going to talk about, which is the Hatterian Brethren case. Again, sort of much of it focused on Section 1, but there the court addressed a conflict between a photo requirement opposed by the province of Alberta on all driver's licenses, and a religious group's objection to being photographed. Until this universal requirement was put into place, the province had permitted an exception for objecting religious groups like the respondents, the Hacharian Brethren. And a majority of the Supreme Court found in favor of Alberta, determining that although the regulation infringed the religious freedoms, so did ex- accept that their honest, sincere belief, the court said that they were justified under Section 1 of the Charter. So the Hatterian brethren were deemed to have sincerely believed that the second commandment prohibited them from having their photograph willingly taken. And in section one of the analysis, the majority found that Alberta successfully demonstrated the requirement was rationally connected to the integrity of the licensing system and that an exemption would materially increase its vulnerability to fraud. The regulations were held to be minimally impairing because no meaningful alternative was identified. And finally, the majority found that the benefits of exempting the Hattarian brethren from the photo requirement did not outweigh the security benefits of the regulation. This was based on a finding that the additional economic cost on the colony of the group, stemming from an inability to drive and a compromise to their self-sufficient tradition, would not be prohibitive. They basically really discounted that aspect of what was the impact of this um, breach on the group. So let's start with your perspective on that latter case. You say the court's judgment represents a communicative failure, and you specifically mentioned the proportionality analysis at the Section 1 stage. Why?
0: Well, one of the reasons that the Haterian Brethren case focuses so much on Section 1 is that the government had actually conceded the religious freedom infringement. So Basically, all the argument was about Section 1. So I think what happened was the government looked at the test in Amsalem, they looked at the facts of the case, and what happened was the significant facts in this respect were that the Heterian brethren who objected to having their photos taken said that it was a violation of their understanding of the Ten Commandments. So they read the prohibition on graven images very strictly and maybe more expansively than other people who use the Bible as a sacred text. And for a subset of Heterian brethren they interpret the prohibition on graven images to prohibit all representational artwork. So if you go into this particular Hetarian Brethren colony, you won't see any artwork on the walls at all because they see, they understand those all to be graven images. And for them, this extends to photographs. So this religious prohibition was, I think, relatively easily understood by the court because you can make sense of it on an individual level. I, as an individual, if I'm a Hittarian who believes this, I can't have my photo taken because of this particular interpretation of the prohibition on graven images. But there was actually a second argument, a second kind of religious freedom infringement that the Hittarian brethren raised. And they said it's interconnected with the first. So one of the fundamental lifestyle commitments that is really emanates from the religious commitments of the Hittarian brethren is this belief in having a communal and collective lifestyle. So on these Hittarian farms everything is communally owned, right? And that's not by accident. This is an outgrowth of their understanding of what their form of Anabaptist Christianity requires. So they say the problem with requiring us to have our photos taken is not just the photo requirement, but it means that we can't have members of our community do the driving for our agribusiness, which is how we sustain ourselves, and so that compromises our ability to be self-sustaining, which is an aspect of our communal lifestyle. So we're going to have to hire outside drivers or drive with expired licenses because we can't have our photos taken. So what the Heterian Brethren were arguing was that there really are two infringements going on here, or two kinds of infringements, or two kinds of religious problems for them. And one of the disagreements between the majority and the minority uh, and the dissenting minority in this case was at what stage do we consider that second infringement? Now for the majority, the what they call the impact on the community is only to be considered in the proportionality stage. But for the majority, it's both. It's relevant in both because we need to understand the nature of the infringement in order to properly appreciate and properly do the proportionality analysis. And in fact, those ideas of collective ownership are very hard to understand in you know, the dominant Canadian cultural understanding. So Hutterite communities generally have to use the vehicle of the corporation in order to instantiate their ideas of collective ownership. So ultimately what the court says is, well, you know, what's going to happen is that they'll have to hire these outside drivers. Well, that turned out to be uh, an inaccurate prediction in some ways. So from my interviews, uh, where I interviewed people on two different colonies. In one colony, They did submit to having their photos taken because it was more important to them to have a communal lifestyle than to observe the photo prohibition. And in the other, they had their members still do the driving, but drive with expired licenses. So they opted at least for a time to violate the law. So the court got that completely backwards because they didn't understand what was important to the Hutterites.
1: Could you contrast the court's approach in religious freedom in the Heterian Brethren case with the approach it took in Multani? Why or what was it that you thought that the court got right in Multani?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. And, and for me, it's not really about the application of any particular test or the selection of any particular test. It's about uh, how the court saw the issue and how the court understood the evidence. One of the potentially challenging arguments in Multani was that what the Multani claimants were arguing was that the kirpan, even though it's in the shape of a dagger, is not a weapon. So even though the schools could devi prohibited weapons, the Multani argument was, but that doesn't apply to the kirpan because it's not a weapon, and it's actually an object of religious significance, and that's how to best understand it. And what we see in Multani is the majority of the courts saying, well, it's not only that... We're not seeing. We shouldn't see this as a weapon, but we should zoom out and be more self-aware about the already dangerous things that are routinely allowed in schools, right? Well, what about baseball bats and geometry compasses and knives that are in the cafeteria? Each of these objects is is potentially dangerous. You know, I bet if you did a, a search of the criminal law cases in Canada, you'd find plenty where baseball bats were used violently to commit crimes or to threaten violence. But yet we routinely allow these in schools. So what I think is so impressive about the Multani reasoning is that the court is able to make that leap, right? It's able to, A, respect the narrative of the claimants who say the kirpan is best not understood as a weapon, but as an object of religious significance. And B, to be self-aware and say, it's not only that we see the kirpan as a non-weapon, as something other than a weapon, But we see our own practices in a new light because of our engagement with the kirpan.
1: Yeah, and it helped that um, they they couldn't really demonstrate any cases in which the kirpan had been used as a weapon.
0: That's right. Another really important or, or really interesting aspect of this case, I learned by going back to the transcripts at the Supreme Court of Canada, and Multani had really fabulous counsel. Julius Gray was on for them, who is a very experienced civil liberties litigator. And one of the things that he did, which at first is a bit of a head scratcher, he talks about the value of sexual equality in Sikhism. When he's presenting the practice of the Kirpan, he says, well, look, in Sikhism, or at least the version of Sikhism that my clients subscribe to, obligations are shared equally by men and women. So it's not just that men have to carry a Kirpan, but it's every baptized Sikh has to carry a Kirpan. And he talks about how they value sexual equality, but also other forms of equality And what does this have to do with the case? Nothing, right? There's no question of sexual discrimination in the case. It's not at all relevant. But what I think the reason this is so successful is he's building a bridge, right? He's using that as a kind of cross-cultural communication to say, you know, Sikhism actually shares a lot of values with Canadian constitutionalism. And so if we can build that bridge, then maybe you can start to see the kirpan in a different light. So to me, that the cross-cultural communication is successful by the court, but I think there's a lot going on on the council side to make that happen.
1: Now you say that the cross-cultural communication is thin, by contrast, in the Anselm case. Could you elaborate on that and how it is demonstrated by the decision?
0: Right, so one of the the implications of this very subjective approach to religious freedom is if all we're concerned with is the sincerity of the claimant, then we don't really care why the religious practice is significant to them. All we care is that it is significant to them. Now that approach really has its benefits, right? It leaves a real zone of freedom for the claimant because they don't have to bring all of this evidence And when I was talking earlier about the rabbis who were brought as expert witnesses, there's a real contrast there, right? When there isn't an obligation to bring an authority from your religious background, then you as an individual have more of a zone of autonomy to say, well, this is religiously significant to me. But it it does end up treating religion as something of a black box, right? We don't want to look inside it. All that matters to us is the claimant says it matters to them. And what this means, and I don't think this is a fully bad thing. I just think that we need to take a moment to appreciate what this does to litigation. And as I said, the the example that I used before of counsel in Multani presenting the values of sexual equality and Sikhism, that's actually an incentive that we might want to be concerned about, right? If religious freedom is in part about creating or safeguarding the religious diversity in Canada— when we incentivize counsel to present their clients' religious traditions in ways that are consonant with canadian constitutionalism and its liberal ethos then we're really asking them to fit their religion into a box and a set of categories that might not really apply and this wasn't a challenge for the claimants in Absalom. we don't see them recoiling at describing their practices in these individual terms in fact you know their version of judaism might actually have a lot in common with the liberal tradition, the judges of the Supreme Court would have been steeped in in their legal training. But that option was not really on the table in Heterian. The failure that we saw in Heterian was, I think, a failure to understand the importance of the collective lifestyle to the Heterian brethren, and that doesn't really jive very well with a more individualistic, classical liberal understanding of religion. Now for
1: sort of a slightly different point, does the court's observance of the sort of vacillating nature of religious belief, sufficiently explore the nuances of religious experience? Is this a step in the right
0: direction? I think this is actually a positive feature of the jurisprudence, right? It allows individuals to change and grow in their religious lives without worrying. Well, if I'm inconsistent over time, is that going to come back to haunt me so that I can't really change my practices when my life calls on it? So I think that that's a benefit, and it doesn't require the individual to show their consistency of belief with some authoritative tradition. There's this fantastic book by an American scholar called Winifred Fallers Sullivan, and she describes a case in Florida. What was at issue in the case was a regulated cemetery. I think it was publicly owned a cemetery, and one of the rules in the cemetery was that you couldn't add ornamentation to the gravestones because of the way that the grounds were maintained. So I think. In this particular case, the gravestones were level with the ground so that the grass could be mowed just by running the the lawnmower over top of them. But there were a group of Catholic visitors who had relatives and close people buried in the cemetery who would come and visit, and they would add ornamentation to the graves as an expression of their grief and their communion with their departed loved ones. And so the question that arose in the case was, well, is this the kind of practice that ought to be protected? And the judge ultimately determined that this isn't an expression of Catholicism. They say they're Catholic, but this isn't really a Catholic practice, so it doesn't get protected. That to me is really troubling, right? Because one of the ways that people express themselves in terms of their devotion and religiously might be what Sullivan says is that religion is a bit like jazz. We have a basic structure, but each of us improvises on top of that structure in ways that are meaningful to us. The, the approach taken in that case doesn't allow that kind of improvisation. And this leads Sullivan to the conclusion uh, that religious freedom is really impossible in law because we can't really define religion in a way that will be satisfying. In Canada, you know, maybe we have found a way to, to use another biblical metaphor to split that baby, right? That if we allow for this vacillating nature of religious belief, and we say you don't have to show that your practices are consistent with some authoritative version of your religious tradition, then we protect a wider array of practices. By the same token, we have to recognize that this is part of a deliberately thin approach. So we just have to ensure that when courts approach religious practices, that they're thin and thick in the right places, right? So that if it's thin in allowing individuals to define what matters to them, well, that's a positive feature of the jurisprudence in my mind. But we also need to be thick enough to understand exactly what the problem is. Otherwise, we run into problems like a Mm -hmm.
1: Your talk about, or the reference to the case involving burial grounds is is a nice segue into the 2017 religious freedom case that intersects with Aboriginal rights under Section 35 of the Constitution to a Naha Nation against British Columbia. The two Naha are a First Nation whose traditional territories include an area in British Columbia that they call Kutmuk, or Kutmuk is a place of spiritual significance for them because it's home to the grizzly bear spirit. uh, Principal spirit within Tunaha religious beliefs and cosmology. Glacier Resort sought government approval to build a year round ski resort in the area. And the Supreme Court of Canada held in that case that the decision to allow the development did not violate the Tunaha's Section 2A charter right to freedom of religion. You have said that this decision is problematic and how it treats indigenous spirituality. So as a sort of an extension of what we've been talking about, religious freedom more generally, why is this case
0: problematic? It's a a really good question. And it was one of those cases that a lot of us who are interested in this area were watching and figured that you know, the Tanaha Nation had a really strong argument going up to the Supreme Court of Canada. And Tanaha Nation is exceptional in a couple of ways. One of those ways is that As I said before, in general, our approach to 2A at the Supreme Court of Canada has been to cast the right really broadly, which ends up putting a lot of pressure on Section 1. A Nation is exceptional in that way because the work that the majority did was on the, the definition of the right and what it takes to infringe the right, what is included and is excluded from the right of religious freedom. And the court does something pretty surprising in that it comes to a decision that, as far as I can tell from going over the records, no one argued. So this wasn't an argument that was subject to the adversarial process as far as I can understand. What the court says is, while the right of religious freedom protects your ability to believe and to practice, it does not protect what they call the spiritual focal point of worship. So if we want to put this in terms of an Abrahamic faith, the right of religious freedom protects your right to worship your God, but it doesn't protect your God itself. Okay? Now, we might understand like what's going on in the back of the court's mind here It would be maybe a problem of religious neutrality if the state was going out and protecting the deities of various religious groups. There may be practical problems that were motivating the court here. So one example that I thought might have been in the back of the court's mind, I don't know for sure, this is conjecture, is the Muhammad cartoon controversy in Denmark where there was this question of a magazine presenting satirical illustrations of the Prophet Muhammad. And one of the problems with that for certain Muslim people is that there is an interdiction on the depiction of the prophet, right? And so they were complaining on that basis. And so the court might be saying, well, you know, you have a right to think and believe and, and worship how you want surrounding Muhammad, but you can't control what other people do about Muhammad. Another potentially practical concern that might have been underlying the court is related to the indigenous population here on Turtle Island in Canada. Because of the importance of land to so many indigenous cultures... If this claim was recognized, there may have been a lot of claims that could have been recognized anywhere that indigenous populations have lived, they likely have some important spiritual connection uh, to the land. And that might create a problem to resource management, other kinds of government decisions that we expect to, you know, follow certain processes, but likely not engage with religious freedom concerns.
1: Yes. I mean, this case is significant in how it treats sacred sites. I think people would be surprised to hear that churches or particular religious sites are not protected in some way. But as you say, if it's Indigenous spirituality, it may, it's a broader uh, sort of landscape that may be affected. And, and, but I think that there's some concern about the knock-on
0: effect of, of this decision. Well, for me, and I'm glad you raised this question of churches, for me, that illustrates the inequality inherent in framing the test this way. Because most churches, especially for dominant religious groups in Canada, you know, Catholics in Quebec and Protestants outside Quebec, they don't need to rely on a religious freedom right to protect their churches because they own the churches. So they can rely on their property rights instead, and that covers off how, whatever religious uses they want to make of the territory. And what's even more troubling about this is that those dominant groups, historically, they got that land from the crown as a gift, right? So, you know, you have a Church of Notre Dame in, in Montreal is more than 300 years old, and it's always stood on the same site, and it, it got that land from the French crown. And you could say similar things about very churches very close to where you're sitting, Cheryl, in, in Toronto, that land and the Glebe land of the St. James Cathedral in downtown Toronto, that was given by the crown to that congregation, right? So it's not only that they can rely on the property right, they got that property right from the state, where we see the precise inverse with respect to indigenous communities whose rights to be on the land are never presumed and whose ownership and relationship with the land was often compromised by the state. So to the extent that religious groups have sacred sites or important places, physical places in Canada, this framing of the test I think is likely very much to work to the disadvantage uh, of indigenous groups. So one of the problems with this test is it's inherently likely unequal effects to the detriment of indigenous groups. And the other problem with this test is that it's unstable. So in the piece that I think you're talking about is one I wrote with Sun Wong, Luke, who's a, a practitioner at an indigenous rights litigation firm in Toronto. And as we were thinking about it, we came to this example of the Eucharist. So in the theology of the Eucharist, it differs between Catholics and Protestants, right, broadly speaking. So for Catholics, the Eucharist really is the body of Christ because of the doctrine of transubstantiation. Whereas for Protestants, it's more symbolic, usually, right? So is the body of Christ the spiritual focal point of worship? If the answer varies depending on whether you're Catholic or Protestant, that seems a bit strange to us. So it seems to us an internally unstable test that is also likely going to draw courts into exactly the kind of determinations they sought to avoid in Amsalem, where they're making determinations of what is the religious meaning of this particular physical thing in the world. The court is not supposed to be the arbiter of religious dogma, according to Amsalem, but how can they avoid that? if they have to determine what exactly is the spiritual focal point of worship.
1: Yeah, so a more consistent approach in know uh, how ha might have been to use the sort of section one analysis rather than finding that there was not a
0: substantial interference with the religious belief. So there was a minority view that did exactly that. And it shows another troubling aspect of the jurisprudence in a different way, right? So he says, yes, If the government is going to strip a location of its religious value for a community, that is a religious freedom infringement. And to hold otherwise would be to say, you know, religious for freedom for some, but not for others. But then he very easily comes to the conclusion that the violation is justified. So how can the complete annihilation of a right ever be justified? I don't think he's wrong on, I mean, he uses the Dore reasonableness framework, but I don't think he'd even be wrong on section one as it's currently understood. So one of one of the things that happens and we talk, alluded to earlier in the Hattarian Brethren case is, to me, when I read it, the goalposts move a little bit on the minimal impairment analysis. And as far as I can see, the minimal impairment step of OAKS is really the only one that ever matters, right? Not to disagree too much with your previous guest, Professor Weinrib, I think his understanding of Section 1 is true to Oakes, but I'm not sure that it's true to practice right because i i can't remember the last time i saw a case where a court says that objective is not pressing and substantial sufficient to override the right or even that objective is not rationally connected to the means so we're already two steps into oaks that the government wins almost every time and the last step of oaks at the supreme court level to my knowledge has never made a difference right that overall proportionality of effects or the salutary deleterious step it always follows minimal impairment at the Supreme Court level, to my knowledge, there's only one appellate case in Canada where it's made the difference. And that third step in Hatterian, what we see for the, the Supreme Court of Canada do is to say, well, if there is a valid objective, then the government must be allowed to substantially complete that objective. So in the step one of Oaks, if we say, yes, that is a valid objective sufficient to override rights, then the government must be allowed to substantially complete it. To me, that changes the minimal impairment analysis as it was understood prior to Haterian. And we see in one of the dissenting views in Justice LaBelle's view in Haterian Brethren says, actually, there can be more of a back and forth, right? We can force the government to compromise a little bit on its objective in order to safeguard the right. But the, the majority doesn't say that. So I think Justice Moldaver's view in Tunaha is faithful to that Haterian Brethren understanding of proportionality, but that makes us scratch our heads to say, well... If we're casting the rights broadly, we're going to put more pressure on the Section 1 analysis. And if we're going to want governments to complete collective goals and give them a bit more leeway, then, you know, are we undoing all of the infringement work by allowing the justification work to be a little bit more forgiving?
1: Well, I want to turn now to something different in terms of the work that you're doing and so you have been working on uh, addressing the impact of interveners in religious freedom cases. And most of these cases that we've been talking about, I think Multani was probably the exception, but most of them had... Numerous interveners involved at the Supreme Court of Canada level. We've seen a real growth in that <laughs> over the last few years. And, you know, the Asper Centre itself has been involved in its fair share of interventions. But for listeners who might not be aware, interveners in constitutional cases tend to be public interest organizations that the court permits to make legal arguments relevant to the issues in the case. And the idea is that in public interest litigation, It helps the court to hear from a broader spectrum of groups who might be affected by the court's decision. So based on the research that you've been doing, in your view, how have intervening organizations contributed to the legitimacy or quality of Supreme Court decisions, particularly in the freedom of religion area?
0: Well, I'm glad you raised those two ways of evaluating. So the quality and and legitimacy. So these are theories that say, why should we bother allowing interveners in? There's a real downside to allowing interveners in. First of all, it takes more time for the court. Courts are public resources. Uh, If the the judges have to take more time on one case, it might mean that they can't hear other cases, right? Especially at the Supreme Court of Canada where rates of leave are particularly low. The other thing is that it, it might actually be a hardship on the parties because now not only do they have to respond to the arguments of the adverse party, they might have to respond to a dozen other arguments that they hadn't even contemplated and that's going to cost them more because it's going to take more time for their counsel, right? So there are these potential drawbacks of allowing an interveners. The arguments in favor of allowing our interveners to participate are exactly those you've identified, right? One, we might get better decisions because just the judges of the court are exposed to a wider range of arguments. And two, it might make the decisions of the court more legitimate because a broader range of actors have had the opportunity to participate. So... We were trying to look in the specific context of religious freedom litigation, and I should say the we that I'm talking about is myself and Catherine Chan, who's a professor at the University of Victoria's Faculty of Law, who's just a dream research partner. She's so brilliant and such a critical thinker. It's really a a treat for me to get to to work with her. So we were trying to say, okay, well, in our little corner of constitutional litigation in in religious freedom litigation, what do we see in practice? Is the allowance of interveners prevalent, and what does it do for legitimacy and quality. So in our sample, which we took about a 20-year sample, we bookended the two Trinity Western cases, so the 2001 decision and the 2019 decision. We see that just about everybody who wants to participate at the Supreme Court of Canada gets to. I think there was only one application for leave to intervene that was denied in our 20 cases. And there's a huge number of interventions. We're talking about, you know, about 150 interventions in just 20 cases. In terms of legitimacy, this is something that's really hard to measure because which kind of legitimacy are you measuring? Are you trying to measure the opinion about the Supreme Court of Canada's decisions in the general public? Well, that's a kind of a survey-based method that you'd need that was kind of beyond our capacities. What we did look at is the range of participants and is it really attracting a broad spectrum of participation? And our finding was that there are a few organizations who are repeat players who participate over and over again in all these cases because it's an issue that's important to them. But there is a pretty broad range of a different number of religious groups who are represented and different numbers of issue groups who are represented. So one of the frequent participators is the CCLA, Canadian Civil Liberties Association. And they often have something interesting to say about uh, religious freedom as they do about other civil liberties. But we do also see some one-time players. So for example, in the Tunaha case, there was a Chamber of Commerce that was represented because of their interests in the development of this proposed ski resort. So we do see a pretty broad spectrum. Where our research got a little bit more in-depth was when we were looking at the so-called quality of the decisions. Now, at first we say, look, when we talk about quality, in contrast to some other scholars, we're not talking about optimal decision-making. Because for us, that's really a question of perspective. You know, how you think the religious freedom jurisprudence should look is a normative question. It's not, to us, a question that you can measure in terms of outcome in an economic way until you first articulate what your normative preference is. But what we were looking for was influence. So were the interveners getting through? One of the the recent critiques of intervention is that because just about everybody is allowed to play, the court has decreased the amount of time everybody gets in oral argument and decreased the number of pages that they're allowed to fill when they submit their written arguments. So, one of the. Oh, we get
1: five minutes. That's five great. minutes is the standard oral That's right. argument now for interveners.
0: That's right. Five minutes and, and 10 pages, right? Probably you could do more in 10 pages than you can do in five minutes. So, I would imagine that that puts more of a, of a premium on the written advocacy that you can do. But we've probably been talking for many five minute increments already. And a lot of the cases, we're just scratching the surface, right? As you say, it's, it's hard to say something in five minutes. So the, the question for us is, well, if it's, if it's a mile wide but an inch deep, how can the interveners get through? Is this a meaningful exercise or is it some kind of inefficient use of court resources or you know, not really worth doing anymore? What we said was, well, let's look for some general indicators of influence. So what we looked for were cases and academic materials that were only in, cited in intervener materials, not cited in party materials. And we found like a good number of those references make their way into the Supreme Court decision. So something is getting through, right? We have actual evidence of that getting through. And there are also a small number of cases where interveners are referenced directly by name in the decisions of the Supreme Court. So those were what we see as kind of general indicators, and we say there's there's actually pretty good evidence there. And then what we tried to do was do a deep dive on a single theme in this already small world of religious freedom litigation, because this, this kind of work really takes a long time and is really painstaking. So what we did was we looked at all of the factums of the interveners and the parties in our data set, and we coded them thematically. And then we chose one theme that, appeared over and over again, which was this idea of collective religious freedom. And we tried to see, is there evidence of influence? Are the arguments getting picked up? Is the language getting picked up? What we see in general is that in the majority reasons, you don't see a very strong evidence of influence. One maybe significant exception is in the crafting of the Absalom test itself, which has come to be, as we've said, the dominant frame for religious freedom litigation. There are sources cited only by interveners that are cited by the the majority of the Supreme Court in crafting the test. So that's maybe one direct line of influence that we can see. But where we see stronger evidence of uh, Supreme Court opinions picking up on the language and ideas of interveners is in minority opinions and dissenting opinions. So we have a couple of examples. Uh, One in the Trinity Western decision, there is a a minority view by Justice Rowe where some of the language that he used tracks very closely with two different interventions. Now, you might say, well, these are minority opinions. They don't really matter, but we have seen over and over again how minority and dissenting opinions come to exert an influence on future cases. So if you think about, as we do, if you think about interveners as norm entrepreneurs, people in groups who participate in litigation because they want to shape Canadian law in a particular normative way, then we do see some evidence of success. And one. Last finding that we made was in keeping with what I said about Tunaha, there are moments when the Supreme Court comes to a, a decision of law that nobody argued. Tunaha case is probably the strongest example of that, this spiritual focal point of worship test that the court lands on, never have been been brought up by any of the parties or interveners. Also a Fetarian Brethren, where the majority says, you know, impacts on the community are only to be considered in the proportionality analysis. Nobody really directly made that argument. So it reminds us that as much as parties and interveners might be norm entrepreneurs, it's the court that has the final say and the the power relationship is asymmetrical.
1: Now you've identified in your research that interveners are becoming more involved in the lower courts, namely at the fact-finding stage of cases at the trial level, as well as at the provincial courts of appeal. What's the significance of this trend?
0: So one of the interesting things when you think about intervention is that interveners are put in a bit of a tight spot because they have to convince the court that they have something unique and interesting to say that will shed some light on the case, but they're not allowed to raise new facts or issues. It's not exactly like this, but it's kind of like the court is saying, tell me something new, but don't tell me something I haven't heard before, right? So that's a bit of a tight spot. And what we see is sometimes interveners push those boundaries, right? Sometimes they make factual claims in their arguments because you need those facts in order to understand, right? Why does the Supreme Court care what the World Sikh Organization has to say about Trinity Western University, right? It's not the same community. Well, it cares, or it, we think it should care because it needs to think about how its general holdings of religious freedom are going to impact different communities in different ways. But how can the World Sikh Organization explain how it's going to impact its community without talking about its religious practices. Well, those are facts not in the record. So those kinds of interveners who need those additional facts to explain why their voice is important and why they're saying something new, they kind of have to bend the rules about facts and issues in order to make their their arguments intelligible. What we might be seeing is involvement at the lower stages gives a bit more flexibility and allows the interveners to contribute to the creation of the record that only happens at trial and the appellate courts are kind of stuck with that factual record. So the more they can participate at an early stage, the more they might have influence there. They might see pushback from judges, right? So we see at the Federal Court of Appeal, for example, some justices are trying to narrow the range of interveners who participate in certain kinds of cases. So going contrary to the trend that we see at the Supreme Court of Canada, where pretty much everybody who wants to gets to intervene, at least in our data set. To me, this participation at earlier stages, those interveners are going to be able to exert at least some influence on the factual record, which can be determinative on questions of proportionality, which is always meant to be contextual and fact-based.
1: Right. Well, you know, we'll be talking a little bit more about the practice of interviewers when we speak with Adriel Weaver in our practice corner in this segment. I want to thank you for this rather wide ranging and uh, interesting discussion today. Um, To close out uh, our time together, do you have a particular project that you're working on that you would like to share with us?
0: I'm on research leave this term, so I have a little bit more time to think and play. And given that next year is the 40th anniversary of the 1982 Constitution Act, I'm working with two colleagues. Uh, We are gathering a group of scholars to think about the way that the 1982 Constitution Act has been surprising in its 40 years of existence. So we're calling the project The Surprising Constitution. Our plan is to meet uh, later this year, sometime in November, and workshop papers and hopefully put together a book that will come out in time for uh, the 40th anniversary of the Charter next year. So I'm thinking in particular about what's called the supremacy of God clause. So in the preamble to the charter, there's this reference to Canada being founded on the supremacy of God and the rule of law. And the way I think about it is that that clause has done very little, if any, work in the 40 years of the charter's jurisprudence. And I think, you know, imagine that you just turned 40 uh, and the way that you've been introducing yourself to everybody for 40 years has been completely meaningless because that's how the preamble starts. So I'm trying to think about, that's a bit surprising on its own that it's done so little work, but what capacity does it have to surprise us in the future?
1: Well, that sounds fascinating. I can think of a number of ways the the Charter has been surprising, so I can't wait to see what comes out in this book. We've been speaking with Professor Howard Kizowitz of the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary about religious freedom under the Charter. Um, Next up in our practice corner, I'll be speaking with Adriel Weaver of Goldblatt Partners in Toronto about representing interveners in constitutional cases. So thank you again for joining us.
0: It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: We now turn to our practice corner with Adriel Weaver. Adriel is a public law litigator. Her clients include criminal defendants, prisoners, immigration detainees, human rights claimants, and public interest organizations. She was counsel to the Asper Center in our intervention in vs. Sharma at the Ontario Court of Appeal. Adriel also represents faculty associations, as well as professional associations and unions in the healthcare sector. So welcome, Adriel. Thanks so much, Cheryl. So we've been discussing in this episode religion and interventions in constitutional litigation, and I want to start with your connection to both through your intervention work. You represented an intervener in the Chinaha case, but I would really like to start with Trinity Western. Can you tell us about that case?
2: Sure. Trinity Western was in fact two cases arising out of decisions of the Law Societies of British Columbia and Ontario to deny accreditation to a proposed law school at Trinity Western University or TWU. TWU is an evangelical Christian institution, and it requires its students to sign and adhere to a community covenant agreement, and that covenant prohibits sexual intimacy that, quote, violates the sacredness of marriage between a man and a woman, even when students are off campus and in the privacy of their own homes. So it creates a significant barrier for LGBTQ students in particular, who would effectively be required to deny or refrain from expressing a crucial component of their identity in every aspect of their lives in order to receive a legal education at TWU. So they would have to do that for the entire three years of law school. Now, the law societies are charged with regulating the legal profession in the public interest, and both held that that broad public interest mandate included fostering diversity and excellence within the bar and promoting equal access to legal education and ultimately the legal profession. And on that basis, on the basis of that broad conception of the public interest, the law societies declined to approve TWU's proposed law school. And that meant that any law degree granted by TWU would not be recognized as qualifying a graduate for admission to the bar. So obviously high stakes for TWU, high stakes for students who might wish to attend that law school. And so they brought applications for judicial review of these decisions. Those decisions on judicial review were appealed. Ultimately, the cases made their way to the Supreme Court. And in both, the majority of the Supreme Court held that although the Law Society's decisions limited the religious freedom of members of the TWU community, they struck a proportionate balance between that freedom and the statutory objective of regulating in the public interest broadly conceived.
1: Many might attribute the current treatment of interveners by the Supreme Court of Canada to the avalanche of interventions in that case. And I don't think I'm exaggerating when I use that word.
2: Yeah, I think avalanche is entirely accurate and it's a really fascinating story, at least to law nerds. So there were more than two dozen organizations who sought leave to intervene on one or both of these appeals. Justice Wagner, as he then was, initially granted leave to nine of those organizations and dismissed the rest of the applications including those of every single LGBTQ organization that had sought to intervene, as well as some religious groups. So that order was issued on a Friday. It was immediately met with outrage and incredulity at the exclusion of LGBT groups and perspectives from the appeal. And there was continued discussion on social media over the weekend. This was a, a very hot issue among uh, legal commentators and activists. By the following Monday, the court had clearly become aware of this controversy, and Chief Justice McLaughlin, then Chief Justice McLaughlin, took the unprecedented step of varying Justice Wagner's original order, adding a full additional day of hearing and granting leave to every proposed intervener. And then Justice Wagner took the equally unusual step of engaging in an on-the-record discussion with the Globe and Mail in which he explained that he felt the groups to whom he had originally granted leave would effectively represent the views of the LGBTQ community. He also indicated that after he was made aware of those concerns, he sought out the Chief Justice to discuss how the court might respond. They agreed it would be best to set a second day for hearing so that other interveners could participate. And then the Supreme Court itself issued a news release on the intervention decision, which stated that while the court doesn't normally give reasons for its decisions on intervention applications, The concerns raised by LGBTQ plus groups and others here really called for a response. And so we see a clear indication of the court's sensitivity to the perception that certain voices had been excluded. And that release also noted that scheduling constraints had informed Justice Wagner's initial decision. It indicated that when considering intervention applications, the court always strives to ensure that it will hear a wide range of voices while also managing the court's time efficiently. So putting it in that context of judicial economy and judicial efficiency. The Trinity Western case, this debate, this discussion, this shift in the orders provided what is really a a very rare glimpse into both the court's internal processes as well as its obvious concern for its perceived receptiveness to a variety of perspectives and ultimately its legitimacy perspectives and ultimately its legitimacy.
1: And its sensitivity to the media in all forms, including Twitter and just the mainstream media, in particular the Globe and Mail. Absolutely. So I watched with great interest the day of interveners in that case and was very pleasantly surprised at just how well it proceeded. I was concerned with, you know, five minutes and 26 interveners, whether or not there would really be effective advocacy. And I thought the interveners played an essential role in the arguments.
2: That was very much my impression, too, as someone who had the privilege of actually sitting in that incredibly packed courtroom. There was obviously some overlap in the general orientation that various interveners brought to the case, but I thought that each provided a truly unique perspective on particular issues engaged. And both the majority and dissenting judgments reflected many of the submissions that interveners made. So I think they had an impact on The substance of the decision that was ultimately rendered. But I would also say that the role played by interveners went beyond their contributions to the arguments here. And I think that's probably true in most if not all cases, but it was especially apparent in these appeals given that procedural history we've just been discussing. So since the advent of the Charter there's been a great deal of debate about the role of the court. We often hear complaints especially though not exclusively on the right, about so-called judicial activism, unelected and unaccountable judges making decisions about fundamental rights that are based not on precedent or legal doctrine, but their own political agendas. And the court itself is obviously live to those debates. It's mindful of how it's perceived. So I think there's a communicative and a legitimating function to a culture of intervention. My colleague Dan Shepherd has argued, quite persuasively in my view, that interventions can support core democratic values of respect for difference, protection of minority rights and interests, and participatory decision-making. So, interventions by groups representing marginalized communities help to ensure that the needs and concerns of those communities are taken into account, and more generally, Greater public participation through interventions serves to democratize the court's process and further legitimate not only its decisions in individual cases, but its broader constitutional review function. Cases like TWU really underscore the democratizing and legitimizing function of interventions. So these were appeals that had attracted considerable media attention, considerable public debate. They were generally framed in that discourse as involving a conflict of rights between religious freedoms on the one hand and equality on the other, both core aspects of identity. And I think they felt quite personal to many people, both members of religious communities and members of the LGBTQ community, and perhaps particularly to those who are members of both The questions engaged are challenging ones that go to the heart of a pluralist democracy. How far does religious freedom extend? Can it limit the rights of others? How should a proportionate balance be achieved? And whatever your view is of the court's answer to those questions, I think there was incredible value in that answer only being reached after a lengthy public hearing in which multiple perspectives were represented. And by multiple perspectives, I mean not just the religious perspective and the LGBTQ perspective, but a range of views and approaches within those groups. So there was a real richness to the interventions in this case that I think was quite instructive and quite illustrative of the role that interveners can play.
1: I want to ask you now no longer about the TWU case itself. You've intervened in a number of different cases uh, or acted for intervener groups as counsel. When you are acting for an intervener, what are you trying to do?
2: So fundamentally, I think you're seeking to broaden the court's lens beyond the immediate controversy between the parties. And that can take multiple forms. So you might be seeking to ensure that the rights and interests of individuals and communities who are not directly before the court or otherwise before the court, but who will be affected by its decision are represented and inform the court's deliberation. You might be seeking to locate the particular legal question in a larger jurisprudential context. So how have other jurisdictions approached this issue? What does international law say? What are the consequences of taking a particular approach to the questions engaged in this case for the development of legal doctrine more generally? So ultimately you're trying to assist the court in making the best decision possible. And I think that's necessarily one that is live to those broader societal and legal contexts.
1: Interveners get to file both written submissions as well as make oral arguments. The Supreme Court has really significantly limited those to 10 pages and five minutes. In your view, how important is the written submissions versus the oral arguments when it comes to interveners?
2: I wouldn't say that one is more important than the other. I think they play very different roles. So when you're drafting your written submissions, you have the benefit of the appellant's factum. You have the benefit of the leave applications of other interveners, and so you have some indication of what others intend to argue, and you can prepare your arguments accordingly. But you don't yet have the respondents factum, so you don't know precisely how the issues have crystallized as between the parties, and even more significantly, you don't have any indication of which issues and arguments the court is going to find particularly engaging or particularly vexing. So ideally, you want to preserve some time in oral argument to pick up on the points judges have made, offer alternative or additional answers to questions they've posed to other counsel, and of course, answer any questions that they pose to you. And it can be extremely challenging at first not to be able to follow your carefully crafted script, especially when you've managed to get it down to that five-minute allotment. But questions are a sign that the court is meaningfully engaged with your argument. And I think it's ultimately much more effective to have a conversation than to deliver a rehearsed speech. So oral argument gives that opportunity for a more dynamic engagement. Your written submissions obviously give an opportunity for a much more nuanced and precise engagement.
1: So you represented the Asper Centre at the Ontario Court of Appeal in the Sharma case. How do interventions differ depending on the level of court?
2: So interventions at the trial level can provide an opportunity to contribute to and shape the evidentiary record. And that can be essential to advancing certain arguments, both at trial and in any subsequent appeal. And that Sharma case is a perfect example of the value of trial level intervention. So just for some background, that case concerned a young indigenous woman, Cheyenne Sharma, who was convicted of importing cocaine. She is an intergenerational survivor of the residential school system, who experienced considerable personal hardship growing up. And when she committed the offense, she was behind on rent. She was facing eviction with her young daughter, and she agreed to retrieve these drugs, import them to Canada in exchange for $20,000 from her boyfriend in order to avoid homelessness for herself and her daughter. She was 20 years old at the time. She had no prior criminal record. And were it not for amendments to the criminal code introduced by the Harper government, she would have been eligible for a conditional sentence, a sentence she could serve in her community, crucially while continuing to parent her daughter. But the enactment of the Safe Streets and Communities Act in 2012 made conditional sentences unavailable for certain categories of offense, including drug importation. Aboriginal Legal Services intervened in Ms. Sharma's sentencing hearing. So at that first level of court arguing that the criminal code provisions, making conditional sentences unavailable, violated Ms. Sharma's rights under sections seven and 15 of the charter. And they filed expert evidence on the relationship between colonialism, anti-indigenous racism, and the criminalization of indigenous women, as well as the impact of restricting the availability of conditional sentences. And the court of appeal relied heavily on that evidence in finding that a Section 15 breach had been established. So when the Asper Centre and LEAF intervened in that appeal, we were able to rely on additional data and findings from government bodies, from commissions of inquiry. We were, of course, also able to make submissions on how Section 15 ought to be interpreted and applied, but we would not, at that stage, have been able to supplement the record with that crucial expert evidence. So one of the challenges in intervening at appellate courts is that the record is fixed and often it lacks the kind of social scientific or other evidence that would ground arguments you might otherwise want to make. It's a very different exercise at the appellate stage and one that often requires some degree of ingenuity in figuring out how to anchor the perspective you want to contribute in the existing record.
1: So what are some key practice tips that you think are essential to a good intervention?
2: A good intervention is, in my view, one that both provides a truly unique perspective and is actually of assistance to the court in deciding the questions before it. There are often multiple interveners, as in the Trinity Western case that we've been discussing, whose interests are broadly aligned. Not identical, but broadly aligned. And so in practice, you have to coordinate with other interveners to ensure that you're not duplicating one another's submissions. You also, I think, have to take care to ensure that your submissions aren't too esoteric or obscure, that they're not focused on issues that are of potentially quite significant academic interest, but ultimately tangential to the matters to be decided. So you really want to be focusing on What the court is actually going to have to grapple with, right? What are the questions that it has to answer? That said, you also want to provide a perspective that transcends the interests of the parties. And as we've described, that could be about the potential implications of deciding the case one way or another for communities or interests that aren't otherwise represented or for the development of the law more generally. So it's a bit of a balancing act. You want it to be responsive to the issues engaged, but also go beyond.
1: Can you describe some situations in which interveners have made a difference, good or bad?
2: Absolutely. And I think one of the most compelling examples of interveners making what is, in my view, a very good difference is the Asper Center's intervention in the Bedford case. So Bedford was a constitutional challenge to provisions of the criminal code that criminalised various activities related to sex work, including keeping a common body house, that's a place kept or used for the purposes of sex work, and communicating for the purposes of sex work. The claimants there argued that these provisions put the lives and the safety of sex workers at risk by preventing them from taking steps, such as establishing a secure indoor working environment or effectively screening clients. But those same provisions had previously been considered more than two decades earlier in the prostitution reference and there the court upheld them as constitutional. So that previous finding engaged the principle of stare decisis, and that was the focus of the Asper Center's submissions. So the Asper Center frequently does this kind of meta-level intervention that isn't just about the particular legal issues, but about how courts ought to go about exercising their role.
1: Yeah, we similarly, we did one in in the Barton case, which was a criminal case in which we argued about the role of interveners
2: in in cases. Yeah, and I think that intervention was also incredibly useful and, and very compelling. In the Bedford case, the Asper Center argued that the common law principle of stare decisis is subordinate to the Constitution. So the court cannot be required by this principle to uphold a law which is unconstitutional. And the court agreed, and it specifically cited the Asper Center submissions in its reasons. And I can say, from my experience, how incredibly gratifying it is to be cited as an intervener and to know that you had an impact in that way. But what's particularly interesting about the Bedford case, I think, is that that decision laid the groundwork for the court's determination in Carter that the prohibition on medical assistance in dying was unconstitutional, despite similarly having reached the opposite determination in the Rodriguez case some 22 years earlier. So that's an example where an intervener made a significant difference not only in the case at hand, but beyond, really shaped the law and shaped the court's approach. I think interveners can also make a difference in ways that can't fully discerned just from reading the decision itself and My former colleague, Cynthia Peterson, uh, represented EGAL in its intervention in Egan. So that was a constitutional challenge to the opposite sex definition of spouse in the Old Age Security Act. And the challenge itself was unsuccessful, but I think it's generally seen as a significant victory for LGBTQ communities because the court unanimously, and for the first time in that case, recognized sexual orientation as an analogous ground under Section 15. And Cynthia's intervention on behalf of EGAL was specifically cited by Justice Iacobucci in his dissenting opinion. He would have found not only that the provision violated Section 15, but that it couldn't be saved under Section 1. But what's really interesting to me about that intervention is this, when Cynthia, who's now Justice Peterson, was appointed to the bench. We at Goldblatt Partners had a going away party for her. And our managing partner played what I'm pretty sure was a VHS tape of her submissions. These were made long before the days of webcasts. Those submissions were, not surprisingly, really cogent, compelling, legally sophisticated. But what really struck me was that when most other people in the courtroom were referring to homosexual couples and homosexual relationships, Cynthia said gay and lesbian. And when she spoke about the gay and lesbian community, she said we, not they. And I think that's an instance where the difference an intervener made was not just in the fact that a directly affected equality-seeking group was represented, but also in the manner in which that representation was undertaken.
1: So going back to practice issues and restrictions that we have been basically given by the Supreme Court of Canada, do you think we are stuck with the 10-page factum and the five-minute argument for interviews? Yeah.
2: Sorry, I jumped on the end of your question there because uh, (laughs) yes, yes, I do. Unfortunately, at least for the foreseeable future, I think we're stuck with 10 pages and five minutes. And uh, perhaps this is a bit Pollyanna-ish, but I think it's really interesting to see how interveners adjust their strategies in response to those limits. So historically, we often saw interventions by coalitions of organizations. And I think that's potentially less likely going forward, not because organizations aren't working collaboratively, but because they'd prefer to apply separately, get 20 or 30 pages if there are two or three of them to work with, and then craft complementary submissions.
1: And the five minute argument, I think is what's the hardest part about it is 10 pages. I think we've lived with for quite some time.
2: Five minutes is really difficult, especially if you begin to get questions early on. And I've certainly had the experience where you sit down feeling like you didn't make any of the submissions that you had intended to make because you were so busy trying to answer questions and address issues as they arose. And that can be incredibly frustrating. We talked earlier about the value of multiple perspectives being heard, and I think particularly when you are there representing a particular community, you want to feel like you have in fact brought that perspective to light, that it has meaningfully been heard and five minutes doesn't always afford that opportunity. So, yeah, I think that is, it is quite unfortunate
1: Many people don't realize that in constitutional cases, in particular, the most frequent interveners are government, who actually do get more than five minutes. Just wondered why that is and how do their interventions differ from public interest organizations?
2: Right. So where a notice of constitutional question is stated, any attorney general may intervene simply by filing a notice of intervention. They don't have to seek leave. So attorneys general aren't subject to that initial gatekeeping process that applies to public interest organizations. And while public interest organizations are generally limited to 10 pages of written submissions, as we've just been discussing, attorneys general have up to 20 pages. It can be slightly unbalanced. There are cases where many attorneys general intervene. And the cumulative effect of that is that you have a lot more space, a lot more airtime given to interventions by government than interventions by public interest organizations or citizens groups.
1: Now you were talking about just this tendency toward interveners going in on their own as opposed to in coalitions given those restrictions, and do you think that that has led to too many interveners
2: at the courts these days? I don't think there are too many interveners. I obviously have my own biases that I bring to that question and I'm not a judge, but it seems to me that the cost benefit analysis is pretty straightforward. There's no requirement that courts address intervenor submissions in their decisions. So I think at worst, an irrelevant or unhelpful intervention requires, at least at the Supreme Court level, whatever time is necessary to read a 10-page factum, and an additional five minutes of hearing time. There's, of course, some additional administrative burden. I don't mean to discount that. But overall, I think the, co- the cost to the court's time and its efficiency can fairly be said to be low. And on the other side, there is the potential for any given intervention to really enhance the court's analysis, to complicate its approach or to clarify its approach to contribute to better outcomes, to make better law. And there's also the value, as we've been discussing, of a culture of intervention to the court's deliberative processes and public perception. If I were a judge, I don't know why I wouldn't want as much assistance as could possibly be provided in grappling with some of these very complicated questions. So from my perspective, a robust culture of intervention is something to be celebrated and fostered.
1: Well, thank you, Adria. We're going to leave it at that. We've been speaking with Adria Weaver of Goldblatt Partners about intervening in public interest litigation and hearing about the various practice tips as well as the benefits of interventions. Today's episode began with Professor Howard Kislevitz speaking about in particular freedom of religion and sharing a bit more about his musical endeavors and our theme sea shanty. Future episodes to be released before the end of 2021, will be covering equality rights with Mary Eberts and Professor Martha Jackman, as well as the charter and climate change litigation with Nader Hassan and the return of Professor Kent Roach. To close this episode, you'll be treated to more of our theme shanty, charter of course.
0: So here's to the Charter, it makes them work harder In weather both fair and unseasonable Yes, here's to the Charter, it's right you can barter Except if the limits are reasonable
1: We use it for crimes, human
2: rights of all kinds We push argumentatively
0: And you know you do well, don't we the do laws officiel To interpret it purposively Charger of course, I will charger of course. If we can just get the country to trust us, charger of course, south, east, west, and north, and along the way we may find justice. Charger of course, I will charger of course. If we can just get the country to trust us, charger of course, south, east, west, and north, and along the way we may find justice.